0: The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. We have come with open hearts, oh let the ancient words impart. Go ahead and take your Bibles, if you don't mind, open them with me the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16, that's Matthew chapter 16. We're going to begin an examination of the text Here in just a few moments from Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. So that's Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. While some of you are still turning there, let me bring you back in your minds at least to a time that occurred and still occurs to some extent in our lives. About two years ago, two and a half, when this pandemic event, whatever you refer to that as, was just getting its beginnings and finally getting to probably its peak. And there are a lot of things back then that had to be made decision-wise as far as our government, whether it be federal, state, local, whatever. uh, They had to make some decisions about what they deemed as being essential. And I can remember in the beginning of that, a few of the things that came out that I questioned and I wondered to myself, you know, is that really essential? Do we really have to have that? Then there were other things, and we'll mention some of these, where I thought, you know what, that is essential. We really do need that. And I agreed with some of those things wholeheartedly. Then there was that middle group that fell in where there were things that I deemed essential in my mind, but then later I thought, you know what, that wasn't necessary and and such. So for example, things like hospitals, doctor's offices, pharmacies, they were immediately deemed as being essential. And I knew that that was right. I mean, people are sick, people are hurting, people even, some are dying, losing their lives and their livelihoods. And so that was essential. I suppose anyone would have agreed on that, and we were glad that that was available. Other things like grocery stores, you know, whether it be Walmart or Publix or Piggly Wiggly or Aldi or whomever, wherever it is you may typically shop, some of those places, most of them at least, were deemed to be essential. And I was thankful for that because I look out into my, uh, my property and I don't see any cattle, I don't see any vegetables growing out of the ground, and so I knew that we as a family would have been hard up had they not been deemed essential. And so obviously I agreed in that. There were other things though on the extreme other side of that, that in many states, not all, but in many states that were deemed essential that I completely disagreed with. Things like liquor stores, bars, even in a few states, strip clubs were actually deemed essential to society. And that not only upset me, it really angered me because I thought, you know what, these things are not good for society, they're they essential to anyone. And if those places had been forced to close by what we would probably refer to now, two years removed by a mandate or a requirement, maybe that would have given people an opportunity to get away from that and to separate from those sinful things that they might have been participating in. And it would have been an opportunity for anyone in that case. And so those were things, when I heard that they had been named essential, I just was completely fed up and aggravated and angered by. But one of the things, and it's the one we're discussing today, if you're in Matthew chapter uh, 16, 13 to 20, you probably have already began to figure this out. One of the things that was, in a sense, albeit not necessarily verbalized, at least that was treated as if it was non-essential, was the church. And that included all religious organizations, I have to say that loosely, you know, all religious bodies and groups and organizations were deemed basically non-essential. But I'm particularly worried and concerned about the Lord's church, the one that he built himself, and how it was really, in the eyes of most people, considered non-essential. Now again, I don't know that there was anything very specific laying out that prohibited our worship and Certain times, and I know that evolved, that changed, but elderships, for example, did have to make some decisions about the safety of her members and have to make some decisions that were hard, many of which they probably, if they had to do it over, would do differently and all of that. I'm not talking about what a local eldership did, I'm talking about the way uh, the society viewed and government mandated certain things, such as I know at one point, and this varied and changed as it went on, there was a point at which it was deemed to be illegal, I guess you'd call it, for any group to gather that was above like 25 people. And I think that got as low as 10. I'm not really sure about that. But I know 25 was enough. And you take Ironton, you take Talladega, you take Munford, you take um, Oxford, you take Jacksonville, you take at least one of the congregations in Piedmont, that's just kind of coming on around us. You've got congregations that were existing at that time with memberships that exceeded 100 and nearly 200 or better. And so when the mandate was laid out, oh, you can't assemble in public if you have more than 25 or maybe as low as 10, uh, that put a huge damper immediately upon all of our ability to worship. And again, in my mind, I viewed that and thought to myself, you know what? Many must believe that the church is just not essential. But I say this without any level of concern or worry about disagreement or, or challenge by anybody, especially outside of these walls. I don't think any of you would do any of that. But I say without hesitation the church that Jesus built will always be eternally essential to our society. It above everything else, if there had been no medical facilities, no hospitals, no doctors, no pharmacies, no grocery stores, no hardware stores, no any of these things, no bars, no, no liquor, any of that stuff, any that could be named. And there were hundreds of different divisions and divides of that, hundreds of different interpretations of that. Above any of those, the Lord's church has always been and will remain the most essential thing in our world. And in one sense, and this is the way we're going to use it today, Matthew 16, 13 through 18 revealed to us that that is the case. So we may talk about this for this hour, maybe in the latter hour this afternoon. I don't know how far we'll get. I know there's much more that could be said that we're going to uh, brush over really quickly for time. But let's begin the reading there. Matthew 16, in verse 13, you'll recognize the account. Here's what the scriptures say. And when Jesus came in the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom do ye say that I am? And Simon Peter stands up, or steps up. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven." And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell, Hades better interpreted, should not prevail against it. Verse 19, And I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should go or that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now, I'd love to focus and probably at another day and another time, I'd love to focus on those questions that Jesus asked. You know, who do men say that I the son of man am? And develop how it was by case, but by interview they couldn't know. By intellect they couldn't know, but only by inspiration. When he asked that question of the disciples again, Who do you, yourselves, who do you all say that I am? Peter being the spokesman here at least, it seems they all would answer both questions. But Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that was to Jesus at least the most satisfying confession anyone could have made. It was accurate and it was appropriate. He said, you are the Christ, that is, you are the Messiah, you are the Savior. He said, you are the Son of God, which in the mind of the Jews in that day put Jesus on complete equality with God himself. We know because of what John tells us in John chapter 1 in his gospel account that Jesus was God. Jesus was not only with God but he was God. We know according to verse 14 that same account that Jesus himself became flesh that is put on human body to come to this earth to represent humanity but also represent deity. We know according to John's statement about him, John 1 and verse 29, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So just to put that together, we know that Jesus was God and God was in Jesus and then all those things were true in the case. But when Peter mailed that profound, satisfying statement about who Jesus was, the reply that Jesus gave, and I'm going to reread now verse 17 again, Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon, Bar-Jonah, Simon the son of Jonah, flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. So giving him commendation for what he had stated, then Jesus said, and this is where we're going to spend the balance of our time. So if, you, if you're not good in your Bibles and have difficulty flipping and flopping, don't worry, we won't flip nor flop, you're here. But verse 18 said again, And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it." In this verse in the verse that follows that we're about to read later. There are basically four things that prove to me the essentiality of the church. Number one, the church is essential because of its designation. Because of its designation. The phrase Jesus used here was, "...upon this rock I will build, construct, set up, or establish my possessive nature of his church." What does the word church mean? What does Jesus imply? What does he infer when he says, I'm going to build or establish my church? What does he mean by that? There are a few different ways to look at that. Number one, I'll list to you the first thing we normally think about, and we think about the word church and its definition and its original language, and we say, well, the church means the ones who are separated. Literally, the word church here sounds like this. Now, this is Mumford Greek, not Grecian Greek. But literally, the word church, backing up what we're reading right here, sounds like ekklesia. Ekklesia. You say, well, okay, that that enlightened me. That, That brightened my day. Ekklesia literally means the ones who are called out. And so I've taken that definition so many times, most of us as Bible students as well, we take that definition, we say, well, there it is. Jesus said he's going to build a church, therefore he's going to build a people who are going to be called out. Called out from what? And the first and primary conclusion I come to is, well, he wants us to be called out of this world. He wants to have us to be called out of sin, to be separated, other words that are very similar to it, not in the way they're spoken, but in what they mean, or things like being holy, Being spiritual, a biblical biblical term for sanctification or be sanctified. All those words mean something similar, to be set apart from something else. There are occasions when the Apostle Paul, for example, says, come out from among you. He wants us to be separate from this world. There are occasions when Jesus spoke, you can find this in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and following, when he talks about the world itself, and he says, to love not the world, neither the things are in the world. For all that is in the world, and he lists those things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He's basically telling us, get away from being worldly. Change your mind, change your heart, change your actions. Get out of that. And in one sense, Jesus' church does exactly that. It allows us to be the called out ones who are drawn out of this world and drawn into him. That's absolutely true. So number one, when he says I'm going to build my church, he's saying I'm going to build this separated place. What I have come to understand though is that there are times, and I can't speak for you, I'm speaking for me. This is just for me. This is my mirror. I'm looking in it. You you draw yours up. But what that's done for me has made me, in my mind at least, a part of the secret society for snubbing sinners. Just, hey, I'm better than you are. I'm closer to God than you'll ever be. And look at what I do and how I live. And I'm a part of the church. And I didn't wear suspenders. I, I don't even have a pair anymore. But I wish I had worn some. And you pop those suspenders and you pull those collars and you straighten that tie. And that's who I am. Is that true? No, not with that mindset. Yes, as Christians, as members of the church that Jesus promises here in the text to build. Verse 18, Matthew 16. I am to be separated. But you see... Not to discredit that definition at all, the ecclesia, the called out ones. We need to completely comprehend the real definitions behind it, which includes that and something else. Not only in this idea, and this is what I'm talking about, this designation. He designates, I'm going to build my church. Is he talking about people who are being separated, but he's talking about people who are being synced. Synced. What does it mean to be synced? Well, you say, well, to be synced means uh, to be brought together. To be synced means to be put aside one another for the same purpose, for the same duty, for the same job. When you think about a computer thing, this morning I had difficulty with PowerPoint and all. I couldn't get things to sync so they didn't work like they should. Something was missing, something was broken. It didn't do what I wanted it to do. But when the Lord said, I will build my church, what he said, in addition to being separated, he said, I want you to be saint. So the word church means this. The word church not only means the called out ones, it also just as importantly means the gathered together ones. The ones who gather. You say, how can you get from that? There are approximately 70 times, and you can go and you can use a digital concordance and find this quickly. You can do it by hand, and I think we'd all grow if we did. But there are more than 70 times in the Old Testament where the terms, the assembly, that's one term, the assembly, or there's a few words that go together that mean the same thing, those who gathered together. The real phrase, gathered together, is mentioned. In all 70 of those cases, the assembly and the gathering together of the Old Testament people, the children of Israel, it was brought into light and mentioned because it was God calling His people to gather in one place, to be synced together. Oftentimes that was done for the purpose of battle. That was done for the purpose of judgment. That was done for the purpose of fellowship. That was done for the purpose of growth. That was done for the purpose of uh, enlightenment or excitement. And that's the Old Testament version, though. 38 times in the New Testament, the word church is used. And each time it is used, it implies as well the assembling together of God's people. Now, again, this is not to, 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 to make any statement about what we have had to do or had to decide to do in the last two years, pandemic-wise. That's not to make any determination or judgment about what I've chosen to do myself in the last two years or any, in that case for however long I should have, have a reason to consider it. But it is to say this. When the church was deemed non-essential by some, or maybe to me in my heart, and this didn't begin on day one, this was like day 10 and 20 and 30 and 40, as I supposed I could, you know, worship at home and online and whatever, it became less essential in my heart and in my mind. When the designation of the church Outset by Jesus, included being separated, but yea, also being synced, being brought together. How wonderful is it that we're here today and we have an opportunity to be synced together. To look at each other. And some of you got guests and family and friends and and to look at each other and say, Look, we are here and we are together. Why are we here? Why are we together? Because Christ was going and did build His church. He set up, He established a place where His people could be separate from the world and at the same time be synced to be God's people. With well, that said, I want to give you three, four things. We'll do four if we can get to them. I want to name you four things that the assembly... The assembly does that nothing else can do. Number one, mark this one down, and again, this all comes out of the word church. Assembling together fuels our faith. Assembling together fuels our faith. You say, Well, what do you mean by that? Well, you know as well as I do practically that when I come into an assembly like this, and I'm gonna tell Cliff we got more people here last week than we did this week than we did last week. But uh, when I come into an assembly like this, just to see you and 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 you, it builds my faith. To come into a place, and I preach often as I travel around. I go to a congregation pretty regularly right now. There's generally anywhere from 6 to 16. That's good. That's great folks. Good people. But the encouragement level is not the same. To be able to understand that as the assembly together, our faith can be fueled because I can just emotionally and mentally say, Look, I'm not alone. I've got people all around me who are here for the same purpose, to serve the same God, to do the same things that not only I do, but most importantly, that this book prescribes. And the interesting thing about Jesus' choice to do that is he built just that one. According to Ephesians 4, 4, and 5, he built one body. According to Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, that body and the church are the same thing. It references the same group. According to Ephesians 5 and verse 23, Jesus became the Savior of that body, specifically that one body, and hence, and therefore, becoming the Savior of the church, that one church, the one he promised to build here. And that's a part of where my faith is found and ground. That's a part of where my faith lies. That's a part of the fact that Hebrews writer says in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, But faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That's why verse 6 tells us, But without faith it is impossible to please him. Who's him? God. But he that cometh to God. It's when we come to God. It's when we do God's bidding. It's when we do God's will. That's where faith is found. It's when we do what he asks. So number one, faith in that sense fuels my faith. Number two, this is important and been missing for quite a while to some to some. But number two, it also helps our humanity. I'm thankful that we are gathered here as a part of the essential church because it helps our humanity. This statistic, you can Google all kind of stuff. Maybe like Google too much or too little. You do as well, perhaps. But one statistic that stood out, and this is from 2020, so it's two years ago. This is the time frame in which I began the illustration. Two years ago, in one city in Japan... There were more suicides in one city in Japan in one month than people who died from the virus in a year. Why? Because it is not good for man to be alone. For some people, for many people, for this people, the one thing I had to rely on and lean on and be thrilled about in an entire week was being able to gather as an assembly, as a church, to worship God. And to a point that was taken. To a point that was made difficult. To some minds that was not even essential to living our lives. Is it? Oh, yeah. Why is that? Because Christ said, we'll look at it again. Christ said, upon this rock, I will build my church. I want these people to be separate. And I want these people to be synced. I want these people to gather. I want them to be here so they don't have to be alone. Hebrews 10 and verse 25. What is one of the reasons? There are many. What is one of the reasons why we gather as a congregation... On the Lord's day. Well, to worship, yes. But 1025, put in a proper context with at least 22 to 32. Please do that on your own time. But 10 to 25 talks about us assembling ourselves together and not forsaking the assembly, same idea, as a matter of some is. Why? Because this is for exhortation. This is so we can be lifted up. This is so that while we're gathered, we're encouraged by one another. So number one, it fuels our faith. Number two, it helps our humanity. This one's important as well. Number three, it applies our accountability. How many of you can honestly say, and you're having to judge yourself, how many of you, I'll say it, could honestly say I'm a better person when I gather with the saints? I mean, I get, I get all the preacher talk and all the Christian talk. You ought to be the same way Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Just You ought to act the rest of the week just like you do on Sunday. Amen to that. But I'm better when I'm here. I'm better when I'm able to assemble. I'm better when I'm able to be separate from the world and have the world uh, in some senses physically removed from my space so I can pull it away from my mind. I'm encouraged by that. I'm held accountable to that. Isn't it nice? And this may not be the relationship of all of us. It probably should be. But isn't it nice to be able to sit on a pew or in front of behind somebody who you know is watching your life and watching the way that you act and react to life and just might lean over and tap you on the shoulder and encourage you Or just might lean over and tap you on the shoulder and even correct you? Have you been on the side of that door? I've been there. Where the brother or sister knocks on your door and you know why they're there. And you want to treat them like a vacuum cleaner salesman and not open it because you know why they're there. And the reason they're there is because they've come to correct and encourage, to rebuke, exhort, maybe. You. And to say, why are you living this way? Why have you let God fall out of your space? That's encouraging. I can be accountable to someone. Most importantly, accountable to God. Number four, this will be the last of that. Not only fuel our faith, help our humanity, apply our accountability, but this one's big as well. It enables our exercise. This is what the assembly does. The church as the separated and the saint, that helps to enable our exercise. How great is it? You know, we've we got a few things going on here that are about. They're about that, they're about that big. Not not quite. They're, they're more like that big that we're able to do. We write cards. You know how big that looks to us? About that big. See, my hands, my knuckles turning white. About that big. No big deal. You know what it means to people outside? It's a way we can exercise, it, it's a way we can reach. Cliff, Cliff the, the mentioned last week, I think, the baskets on the back. You, you know how big those are to, to, to us? You know what type of exercise we can do to them? I heard a phrase the other day, I listen to all kind of preaching, all kind of stuff. Some of it I turn it on. I know it's garbage from the word go, but I'm listening for little things. I'm listening sometimes to say, well, here's the, here's the, here's the mess they're teaching and, and you know, what does the Bible say to help me make sure I can understand what they're teaching and why they not, should not be teaching. Here's a phrase. The congregation who doesn't evangelize will fossilize if they're not willing to exercise. This does that. We gather in this building together. It gives all of us, every one of us and all of us, an opportunity to exercise our faith toward God and express our faith toward each other and to extend our faith toward the world. I mean, it's very, it's very surface. It's very unimportant. But if someone drives by this building and sees the parking lot full, what does it do to them? How does it change their mind about us? It can only help to say, well, I don't know what they're doing or what they're teaching or what they're believing or what, 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 what. But I know this, there's a great number of people that definitely are a part of that. And then when our arms outreach to those and our exercise begins outside and beyond these doors and these walls, we have an ability and an influence on them that we otherwise may not have had. So why is the church essential? Number one, It is essential because of its designation. Because we function as those who are separated and those who are seen. Three more points for this afternoon. If you're here this morning, you're not a child of God's. I want to encourage you. You need to be. Because whether or not you're talking about your temporary state in life, or your eternal status in life, this matters more than you perhaps know. If everything in this life, and eventually it will, were to meld away, to be dissolved, both biblical terms, to be done away, What would be remaining to stand? There are two things mentioned in the entire Bible. Two things outside of God mentioned in the entire Bible that are said to have been eternal. One is the Word and one is our church. God's church. The Lord's possession. If you're here this morning, you're not a child of God. The invitation is open. It's not open by me. It's not open by anyone else in this room or in this building. But the invitation continues to stand open from our Lord. He encourages us to hear His Word. Don't don't take the Word. I've got got books stacked everywhere. I've got bookshelves that hold books. and, And all of them are Bible related. This one matters. Hear this. So then faith. You want to have faith? cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. That's what this says, Romans 10 17. I have to be willing when I hear these things to believe them. You know, this entire book is summed up really in one phrase or one statement of Jesus. He said, except you believe that I am he. That's what this book teaches. Jesus is God. Except you believe that I am he, you shall all likewise perish. Luke 13, 3 and 5, Jesus out of his own mouth talking about the need for repentance, changing, turning away from the world and toward him. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Be willing to confess his name. That's what Peter does. We we won't mention that in this hour as much. We read it. All Peter did was confess the name of Jesus in a way in which completely and fully and satisfactorily expressed who he really was. Guess what confession the Lord desires of us? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We confess with our mouths, we confess with our lives. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you're here this morning and it's your desire to do what God has for you to do and to be a part of His essential church, not only to this world but to you and to your life, He invites you to put Him on in baptism. For the remission of sins, Act 2:38. While together we stand and as we sing.